Welcome to the Pro Politics Podcast. I'm Zach McCrary. I've been working in politics for the better part of two decades, but at heart, I'm a political junkie who wants to talk to interesting people involved in politics. Today, I'm joined by Gita Dagger, President and CEO of New American Leaders, a group dedicated to preparing first and second generation Americans to run for office. Gita herself came to the U.S. at the age of nine after spending time in both Lebanon and Sierra Leone, moving to Dearborn, Michigan, and ultimately becoming deeply involved in Michigan politics, including being a senior aide to Governor Gretchen Whitmer. In this conversation, we talk her memories before coming to the U.S., her experiences as an immigrant acclimating to America and becoming involved in politics, her time around Governor Whitmer, and her current work leading New American Leaders. Gita Dagger, tell me a bit how you grew up. I was actually born in Sierra Leone in West Africa, third generation Sierra Leonean, but 100% Lebanese. So very much a third culture kid. I moved here as a refugee when I was just a couple months shy of turning 10. And you can imagine the world you come into as someone who's brand new to a country coming from multiple cultural backgrounds. It was a struggle for a while, actually, coming in as refugees. You know, we were lucky that we had some family in Michigan. They chose Michigan because of that. And Dearborn in particular, which is the Arab American capital of the country, that doesn't mean that just because there's a big community doesn't mean it was any easier. It maybe made it warmer on some tough days, but the same struggles that a lot of immigrant families face, we face too. Navigating new school systems, navigating immigration alone is a whole behemoth that folks have to deal with. And, you know, my own immigration story actually went on and I didn't become a citizen until my senior year of college. So it was a very, very long journey. But I was very much, I sort of developed and I grew in a post 9-11 world. And that's where a lot of my political framing and engagement sort of stemmed from. It's, you know, I saw Muslims, I saw folks who were mistaken for Muslims, I saw immigrants overall be heavily affected by policies that were put in place and also just the xenophobia that came out of that. So it really shaped a lot of my upbringing and my background. What do you remember? What can you say about growing up in Sierra Leone? Can you give a, a sketch of your experiences? That's what the first eight, 10 years of your life, right? Yeah. So I smile when you ask me that because a lot of the memories are very fond. You know, lifestyle is very different from here in the U.S. There's a focus on actual quality of life in the sense of enjoyment of life, beach culture and community culture. And a lot of folks ask, like, what took you to Sierra Leone? How are you third generation Sierra Leonean when you're 100% Lebanese? And that's because a lot of Lebanese folks left Lebanon during the colonization, whether it was the French or the Ottomans and some of the conflict, and went to pursue opportunities elsewhere. I have Folks, my family members who have been in Sierra Leone since the late 1800s, merchants or sold textiles or some folks who started as peddlers and really grew into this community. Even though there was very beautiful, I have very fond memories of Sierra Leone uh, and a lot of family gatherings, a very large family. There was also some ugly that came with that. And that's why we're refugees. It was because of the political instability that existed. It was coup that took place. I actually experienced two civil wars in Sierra Leone and we had to flee. My parents have lost their homes four different times in different conflicts, whether it was in Lebanon or Sierra Leone. So the concept of stability is something that was very important to me and something that we tried to do and achieve often without the idea of giving up on a home. I think a lot of people have this misconception that immigrants are choosing to come here all on their own. And there is some of that. But a lot of us don't have any other option. This is our haven, and this is why we come to the U.S. 
a lot of folks are familiar with the movie Blood Diamonds. It's definitely it's not exaggerated. And a lot of it is actually much more graphic than is shown. It was very, very brutal. The first time it happened in 97, the first coup that happened in Civil War that broke out, we were held hostage for 13 hours in a burning hotel in the basement of it. We actually got out of the country by being snuck out on a cargo ship, a cattle cargo ship that was getting people out in the middle of the night in a a massive storm. It was very much a saga. The rebels were the Revolutionary United Front in Sierra Leone, and there was a coup with the government. They engaged a lot of child soldiers in carrying out their work. They would rob houses, a lot of rape. Essentially, some of the folks in the Lebanese community were looking to go and find a safe haven, what we called Green Zone. And it was a hotel called Mamiyoko. We went there because we snuck over, actually, in the back of a van to get to Mamiyoko because the Nigerians were supposed to be the peacekeepers, the UN representatives, essentially. The rebels found out that there were a bunch of people in this hotel were waiting. While that was happening, there was Americans that were there, green card holders. There were nationals from many different countries, including my several family members who were American citizens and green card holders and my extended family. I remember it was a Wednesday. The Marines landed at this hotel and helped evacuate Americans and green card holders. And we weren't green card holders. We had visa, a visitor's visa, because we had intended at some point in life to be able to come and visit. And we watched our family members be evacuated because they were citizens, green card holders. It was a protection that we saw as being as Americans that wasn't afforded to us who were not nationals. So that was, for me, a very profound moment, tying the idea of the United States to security, like physical security. And then we stuck behind trying to figure out another way. And so two days later, the rebels said, okay, the Americans are out. The real threat is gone. This is our opportunity to prove a point. They started bombing the hotel while we were all staying there. At the time, what we had decided to do was what we need to seek refuge. And we all went to the basement. And this is the basement where linens were stored, plates, etc. We were down there for 13 hours. And at some point, the hotel started burning on top of our heads and smoke started coming down to the basement. And I remember people calling different channels, the Red Cross, all these organizations to plead with them to get us out. Red Cross was actually able to negotiate a deal. And that's how we got out. But I remember this is, for me, very profound. My mom started tying linen around us. And we'd ask, why are we doing this? And it was, well, honey, I think we need to get out of here one way or another. And if we're going to walk out, I'd rather you be draped in white, signifying peace, than for us to suffocate down here. That's how we got out the first time. And we went to Lebanon. And then we spent some time in Lebanon that was very difficult. And we went back to Sierra Leone after several months because we didn't want to give up on the idea of home. And it happened all over again. And at that point, my parents said, enough is enough. This time we got to go somewhere else. We came to the U.S. and we entered the U.S. very luckily because we had visas already on our passports to be able to visit. But when we entered at the airport, we started seeking asylum right away. We went through the process. We got temporary status, protected status. About eight years later, we were told that our asylum was denied. They said, essentially, you can go back to your country now because you don't need the temporary status anymore. And luckily for us, my father worked with someone who had been watching our journey. And he found out my dad was preparing to take us back. And he essentially sponsored him as an employee for us to get the green cards. And that's how we eventually became green card holders and citizens of this country. Amazing, phenomenal story. What are your early memories of the U.S. through the eyes of a, what, a nine-year-old? But what are those first few weeks and months and years as a young person getting used to this very new experience? 
Luckily for us, language was never a barrier. We all grew up taking English classes. We attended school system that was British system. That part was pretty easy. As, as a matter of fact, we were pretty advanced academically compared to our American counterparts when we got here. Uh, I remember my first experience. We landed in February. I remember being in the airplane and looking down and seeing these really big mounds of white stuff that I was wondering what they were. And it turns out it's snow and it's these piled up shoveled mountains, little mountains. I remember experiences like us not necessarily sure how to navigate the educational system or some of the requirements that were needed. For example, being shocked seeing people drink from a water fountain because we never had access to clean water in that way. I remember having to not just figure out the process ourselves, the systems ourselves, but sometimes also having to guide our parents through some of that. I also, you know, remember, you know, all of us pitching in a lot as a family. And that, you know, is a mentality that we still have as families is making sure that each of us are taken care of, but also we're taken care of collectively, whether it was childcare and watching each, you know, watching my younger brother or my older sister watching us when needed. It was a lot of pitching in. We came here in 99 and 2001 was September 11. Things just changed so much. It was instant in terms of how people reacted, in terms of how school systems sometimes treated us, even like the tone immigration centers when we showed up. All of it shifted very significantly. You know, I've had experiences with teachers who have let their personal politics get in the way of my education. We just saw it play out in a lot of different ways. I remember all of us freaking out in the household. We freaked out because we're like, all right, they're going to kick us out. It was going to be an umbrella approach and they were all going to get the boot and we have nowhere to go. That, that was the fear that we lived with for a long time. It's this underlying insecurity and stability that we really sorely needed. And obviously, eventually came with time, the events of 9-11 and the policies that followed really set that back. And talk about Dearborn. Most people know it's near Detroit. It's at a booming population of Arab Americans. You refer to it as the Arab American capital of the United States. What are your experiences in Dearborn? What can you share about it to give it maybe more of a three-dimensional perspective? Yeah, yeah. Dearborn is home. It's my hometown in terms of the United States. And I'm so proud of it. It is just a phenomenal community. It's always been a home of immigrants, whether it was Polish or Italian or Irish. And now it's very much known for the Arab American immigrant community. In particular, it's the home of Ford. And so a lot of folks came to Michigan, immigrants in particular, and even folks from the South uh, during the Jim Crow era to come through and work for the $5 a day Ford implemented. The manufacturing was really big. But also Dearborn is a huge hub for small businesses and entrepreneurs. It has a thriving small business environment that is in due to the immigrant communities. There's an entrepreneurial spirit that exists because of that. Dearborn's also shifted a lot politically uh, in the last 50 years. Dearborn is was home to Mayor Orville Hubbard, who is known as one of the most racist mayors and is in leadership of the KKK and other a white supremacy organization, which then evolved into this motto that was to keep Dearborn clean. And it wasn't in reference to litter and trash. It was in reference to humans and keeping out people of color. And it's continued to evolve. And, you know, new Americans and in particular, the Lebanese community became very engaged politically. And of course, eventually the Iraqi and Palestinian communities, the waves of them that came in and the Yemeni American community, of course, Dearborn this past couple of years has now elected its first Arab American mayor. It's incredible to see that political journey. And I think a lot of that fire that exists in people from Dearborn is because they were faced with such adversity. It was so palatable, the post 9-11 effects 
But at the same time, because we live in this big community, we were able to create our own ecosystem. We were able to create our own umbrella of inclusivity that maybe Muslim Americans or Arab Americans didn't necessarily feel in the same way in other parts of the country. And like any ethnic group, affinity group, religious group, Arab American community is multifaceted, not yeah. monolithic. But what should people who are not from parts of the country or parts of the world where you're around a lot of Arab Americans or Muslim Americans, what are the some of the, I don't know, characteristics and commonalities? How should outsiders think of it? That's a great question. The Arab American community is one of the most diverse. Uh, I think people often conflate Arab American and Muslim American as the same thing. They're actually not. To be a Muslim is to obviously follow the Muslim faith, which is the largest faith at this point in terms of diversity and all that. But in terms of the Arab culture in particular, it consists of all Arab-speaking countries. So that's Middle East and North African countries. In terms of Dearborn, in particular in Michigan, there are very large Lebanese, Iraqi, Yemeni, Palestinian, Syrian communities in particular, and they are of all faiths, including Muslim with multiple sects of Islam, of course, Christians, Catholics in particular, a Maronite community, and there's an Orthodox community here. So a lot of diversity in thought, a diversity in culture, diversity also in the dialects and language. I think one thing that's really consistent for all of our benefit is the delicious food that exists in Dearborn. Put us up against any other cuisine in the country and say we have some of the best food around. And I'll also add this. I think people, of course, there's a Muslim community, but like I said, there's a community of a lot of immigrants. We have a road not too far from here called Alter Road. And that has is home to the largest mosque in North America, the Islamic Center of America. And right next to it is an Armenian church. And right next to it is an Orthodox church and a Maronite church. And they're all on one road right next to each other. To me, when I talk about faith in Dearborn and I talk about the diversity that exists in that way, I think of Alter Road often. And politically speaking, again, with the caveat, uh, it's not a monolithic group, but can you give the 101 version of the currents that are traditionally most important in understanding how Arab Americans approach a political issue or a campaign yeah. or a candidate? Traditionally, a lot of Arab Americans have identified as conservative, and that was historically uh, the trends that we saw socially conservative uh, were more reserved on issues, you know, of maybe LGBT rights, fiscally conservative in particular. And often they were driven by the fiscal conservative in the, you know, sort of traditional values, uh, family values. That shifted significantly during the George Bush years. A lot of Arab Americans actually abandoned the Republican Party either to become independents or to become Democrats. As we continued to see this white nationalism reemerge in the country, a lot of Arab Americans continue to move towards the left and are continuing towards joining the Democratic Party. There has been some key issues that have popped up politically that have tested the waters. There's still some of that that we see. But overall, we've seen a, sh a shift towards the left. In, in terms of Arab American engagement, we've seen record numbers of voters in the last several years and the last several election cycles. And often that is due to representation on the ballot. When folks, new Americans across the board, see someone who looks like them or sounds like them on a ballot, they tend to come out and vote for them. And a big part of that is also the ground game that new Americans have. One of the edges that new Americans tend to have when it comes to political campaigning is that they focus very low engagement, knocking on doors, showing up at small businesses and not taking for granted the importance of grassroots and base building. And so we've seen 
record numbers of voters turnout in the last couple of election cycles. And what are your own early political memories? You mentioned 9-11 as this overwhelming existential event. Aside from that, were there campaigns or candidates who caught your attention as a young person getting your political wits about you? Yeah, absolutely. Locally, very locally, there was a long-term council member by the name of Suzanne Serini was a trailblazer. She was the first Arab American woman to hold office in the country. I remember watching her being so fierce, so steady in her leadership. She was one of those people who was actually a Republican, but it was inspiring to be able to see some of that. For me, in terms of what I engaged around politics, I remember my first campaign that I volunteered on. I was 11 or 12 years old. And And I did phone banking and I called Arabic speaking households and I talked to them about the issues of importance in a campaign. Uh, I talked to them about national security issues, talked about all these things that you wouldn't expect someone my age group to talk through. And so often, you know, I would talk and then they would say to me, honey, we have this thing in the Lebanese community and whose daughter are you? I'm sure we know each other. And so they would ask me and then they're like, how old are you? And I would say and they would be shocked. So that's one of my earliest political memories for Al Gore. <laughs> and I, somebody had recruited me that was a friend of the family. And, and then I remember also volunteering on the Kerry campaign. That was the first time I knocked doors, thinking how exciting it was to talk to all these people and to let them know about issues that they didn't realize. From there, I just was a person that always looked around me and said, okay, what, what do I think that needs to be changed? Or what do we need to educate people on? And I took those on. I didn't realize that the things that I did were always political. They just sort of came to me. My activism and my involvement wasn't a, really a choice. It was a necessity. It was very much rooted in my existence as an immigrant and as a person who often felt underserved or marginalized or frankly belittled by a system. And I felt like, well, I wasn't going to wait for somebody else to do it. I was going to try to do something about it myself and try to get others to join me in that conversation. And so do you remember when or what caused that switch to flip for you where you knew Not that you just wanted to have some involvement and volunteer here and there, but you knew you wanted to work professionally in politics? That's a great question. It's funny. When I grew up, I wanted to be a doctor. And uh, the reason I wanted to be, my dad's a physician, a humanitarian physician. So I, I used to watch him engage with people and and thought how incredible it is to be able to be helpful regardless of where you are in life. And that actually then became a thing of like security and stability of I can be a doctor anywhere, regardless of what happens, regardless of what war breaks out. I might even be more relevant if something happens, you know, in that way. But it was always for me, it was like when I become a doctor and I have these resources, then what I want to do is I want to be able to help build health systems in places that are underserved, make sure that others feel heard. I didn't make that official shift in my career, in my where I wanted to be until college, actually, my freshman year of college, where I said to myself, why am I doing this? This is what I really want to do. And at that point, I had already been involved in multiple political things and activities and thought, no, that's what I want to do for a living. I just, frankly, I didn't, I had a hard time visualizing it because I didn't see people around me who were doing it of my own background. And I often, I didn't feel like I had access to that kind of world. I kind of avoided it in terms of making it a career or something that could be long-term for me. I really did have a hard time visualizing it. It's not a politics and advocacy and policy work. It doesn't have a clear pathway. It's not like, you know, med school, you're going in and all of a sudden, you know, you had to go to school, you got to do your residency, potentially a fellowship, and then you get to practice. And this is, you know, before organizing became popular and some of these things that potential pathways that exist now. 
And I'm sure I'm skipping over a step or two or more, and you can fill in any blanks, but when and how do you enter the world of Governor Gretchen Whitmer? What is your connection to her and how does that come to be? Oh, that is one of my people I I just look up to so much. She's just a phenomenal leader, such poise, such grace, such strength, truly. I'll share some background around that. I was working in nonprofit work doing policy, and I didn't envision myself as someone who was going to ever run for office or someone who was going to be more politically engaged. At some point, I started to feel like politics felt a little icky because of who I saw and the hurdles that they were creating for people. And so I focused on the policy front. I did immigration work. I did economic mobility, public education, and public health advocacy work in various nonprofits. And then a state legislator, Rashida Tlaib in Michigan, said to me, hey, you should do this program called New American Leaders Ready to Lead. And I said to her, like, Rashida, I'm not running for office. I just want to do the good work of policy. And she said, go ahead and go meet some people. I signed up for it. I was smitten. I very much fell in love with the people. I fell in love with the organization. It really changed a trajectory for me of my career and allowed me to become, it actually encouraged me to become more political and to advocate for the things that I like. You know, I managed campaigns. I led uh, on several issues. I opened up eventually a small consultancy that worked with new American candidates. In that one of those election cycles, candidate Gretchen Wimmer was running for office for governor, doing lots of community events, was inviting people who I felt went beyond the usual suspects of engaging people in the communities. And I was one of those unusual suspects. I started showing up to events and I would say, hi, I'm here. Uh, my one thing that I'm asking of you is to think about representation when it comes to appointments. She's like, yeah, yeah, I got it. I'm talking, you know, bench, all of that. I said, no, beyond the bench. I'm talking about your boards and your commissions. Those are so important. She's like, I got you. Yep. And I and I would say, I just think there's a really a ton of people who aren't, you know, the ringleaders and the gatekeepers in our communities that deserve a chance at helping shape the work that you're going to do. And it happened at a few events. I just sort of kept popping up and reiterating that point. Of course, she gets elected. She's governor-elect. And um, they continued the engagement with community leaders and emerging leaders to say, hey, what are important trends? And again, I kept pushing this issue, which for me became top of mind because of New American Leaders. I got a phone call one day and it says, hey, we'd like to talk to you about an opportunity. And so I went to Lansing and we chatted and eventually they asked me to become the director of appointments. Why don't you do this thing? And I signed up to be her director of appointments. It was I was there for about three years, 2200 appointments during that time. I was so proud to work alongside her to build the most diverse administration to date, including, you know, like I said, boards, commissions, university, judicial positions and vacancies. It was a, definitely a lifetime honor for me to be able to work side along someone who just demonstrates such strength and to be able to do that during unprecedented pandemic, other layers of uh, insanity, of course. And she was just so such a steady leader. And I learned so much from her during that time. And I should say full disclosure, my firm polls for Governor Whitmer, my partner, John Anzalone, polled for her both times, my colleague, Brian Stryker as well. Can you give a little more flavor about the role of director of appointments for a governor? Can you demystify that a little bit? Yeah. What does a position like that entail? I actually didn't know what appointments were early on in my career. It was something that I grew into a little bit more when I realized there were all these really cool boards and commission at a state level and local level and city level. Each of the executives and legislative bodies at those governments have appointment powers and privileges. And these boards range from everything from the Apple Committee to natural resources to museum boards to 
uh, pretty much everything under the sun. Michigan is pretty unique in the number of boards it has. It has over 350 boards. The governor gets to make those appointments on a rotating cycle. Every four years, a couple of seats come up and another and another and another. It was fascinating to join the administration when I did early on because we had to set up the infrastructure to make those appointments and also talk about outreach. Traditionally, those opportunities fell out of touch for a lot of the everyday folks. It was reserved for folks who had access to the Capitol, had access to the executive, and often that meant they were in places of power. One of the things that the governor shared with me, and we both very much agreed on or aligned on, is that we needed to bring also people with lived experience to those positions and to get into communities that were traditionally underrepresented including immigrant communities and new American communities, tribal communities, Black communities. We worked very hard to do that, spoke with folks in communities across the state and have various priorities. And it was important to us that every time we thought about a board, we thought about the diversity in their thought, diversity in geography, diversity in race and age, in perspective, and to really be a very, very intentional and thoughtful in how we crafted a roster of appointees to a board so that they were able to consider multiple perspectives and come to the best decision and policy making possible. And these, again, range from a lot of different issues, some that's as sensitive as children's abuse and neglect to how do we allocate resources to our parks or clean water, or even down to immigrant affairs boards that are ethnic specific, the Middle Eastern Commission or the Asian American. And we even created some new task force and commissions and committees during that time to address some of the needs that we heard about. And not asking you to divulge any names by any means, but are there stories of people maybe coming on too aggressively and seeking a position, going overboard with their efforts? You know this. People feel very strongly about their politics and their passions. And there was a times when you just have to have a conversation and say, like, we got to think of a different perspective to add to this board. And we know what you have to say is very relevant, and we hope that you'll engage with this board in a different kind of way, or maybe wait a little bit until that perspective is needed. But we always found different ways to engage people and say that there are mechanisms in our democracy to engage a lot of different folks, and you just have to be aware and educate them about what they are, that they can engage in that. I always say you don't know what you don't know. Right. And so it's our job as government to make it as accessible for folks as possible, to educate them on process, to say that, hey, this is a two way conversation. You could tell us what you're thinking and we'll tell you what we're thinking. And I'm sure we can reach somewhere on this. A name you mentioned, give me a little bit on Rashida Tlaib, the Rashida Tlaib that you know, that you knew, it sounds like as a state legislator, the Rashida Tlaib that you know and have seen up close. Yeah. Rashida is someone that, uh, when I think of, breaks the mold of elected officials for a lot of us who watched her. You know, a lot of us have this idea of elected officials as sort of like presenting a certain way, looking a certain way, whether it's like donning a perfectly polished suit and some pearls and rising to elected a position by, you know, mingling with folks who have a lot of money and our interest groups. You know, Rashida broke the mold for a lot of us in thinking in that way. Rashida's, if you know her background, worked in community organizations, very passionate and lets others know about what she's passionate about, whether it's things like climate justice, immigrant affairs, or even on issues that others are afraid to touch, like Palestine, for example. You know, Rashida's fearless in that way. She's very, she stands true to the things that she believes in. Rashida, in, in her own right, has blazed a, a pathway for a lot of people to see themselves in office and to be seen for the first time and to feel represented for the first time and has made it feel accessible for people, especially in the Arab American community in Michigan, 
to feel like they can also step up and serve. You know, Rashida is a, a, will be the first to tell you that she's on her own development journey. We all are. I think that's that com- that's one of the things that I, I love about her. There's a humility as a leader to see her as one of two first Muslim congresswomen to walk the halls of our Capitol brings me such joy and such pride. See her just inspire everyone, not just Arab Americans. You know, we train people all over the country. And Rashida's name comes up in every single training that we are at as someone who is an inspiration. And I think that says a lot about the void that is ex- that was existing in our politics before and the hunger for representation that we see in one another as new Americans, uh, whether they are of our own identity, ethnic identity or not. And you mentioned your own initial intersection with New American Leaders, the organization New American Leaders, several years ago, but that is now the organization that you are the president and CEO. What is the path where you take such a strong leadership role? Yeah. So as I mentioned, I've always felt very strongly about this. And when I stepped into, uh, in 2015, when I did the New American Leaders training in Michigan, Uh, It was pretty transformative for me. Uh, But more than anything, it was the first place that I entered a political organization, a professional and leadership development space, where I didn't feel like I had to explain who I was, where I came from in a way that didn't feel like belittling or transactional. I felt I could be authentically as myself as possible. It was a place where I also didn't get questions like, where are you from from? Mispronouncing my name through the entire training without any attention to it. Things like that. I was really, really very much taken by the organization. I felt very welcomed. And there's a little bit of a magic sauce to that exists in the organization uh, that people still feel to this day. It was really, again, very transformative for me. And I continue to be engaged in the organization over the years, an advisor for them over the years. They eventually asked me to join their training faculty. So, you know, several weekends a year, I would go and train folks around the country for them. And then, you know, when I was in the governor's office, those jobs are all consuming as you know, but I was able to help open doors for new Americans. So when this position, this opportunity came up, it wasn't something that I was seeking, but you know, the organization was going through some transitional changes. I just felt so strongly. It was really hard to walk away from this opportunity to be able to have such an impact on a national level to say that we are literally changing the face of government and the face of democracy in the United States of America. So it was a little bit like a homecoming when I joined the organization as its president and CEO. It's been now about a year, a little over uh, a year and four months. It's just been so wonderful. It's been so much fun. You know, the organization has been around 12 years. It's trained over four 1,400 people across the United States. And it really, it's the only national organization and nonpartisan organization that's focused on empowering immigrants and anyone who identifies with that immigrant experience to run, win, and lead in our democracy. And what is your sense of what the challenges that are unique to folks that New American leaders work with, first and second generation Americans? Well, it's quite a long list, but I'll just give you a few to to, to uh, some flavoring and some of those challenges. One challenge, for example, is access to capital and money. Our political system really doesn't exist without money, without campaign contributions, without having a fundraising base, for example. New Americans, especially immigrants, you know, are struggling on that front because they don't feel like they have access to those networks at times, or they're not in the spaces to meet those movers and shakers that have traditionally reached the top of the economic food cycle here. 
that is one definitely fundraising is a challenge it's often also taboo or not an issue that they talked about money is not an issue that they talked about because it was scarce another is the xenophobia that exists and misogyny that exists for many the islamophobia for example that might exist uh, you know looking at members of the arab american muslim communities that's something that they face very much there are party barriers as well and challenges we talk to folks all the time who run for office and say party didn't look at me they didn't even give me an opportunity uh, because there was somebody else that was already plugged into the system. And so it's hard for a newcomer to break through in general in politics, but it's much harder for new Americans in particular. And you mentioned trainings, you mentioned some of these other things. What are the tools that you're able to bring to bear to help folks like this? Yeah. In our trainings, we show participants how to really utilize and leverage their identities and their lived experiences to connect with voters and strengthen our democracy. And after a decade of training, folks, our alumni have proven that the skills that they need to run and win and lead are in our democracy are within them. They just need somebody to help bring them out. Things like how to fundraise, how to base build, how to pivot, how to do messaging, how to address and talk about some of these concerns that are are holding them back from running for office. Things like immigration status of family members, or maybe even if there has been sort of a criminal history somewhere in the family that somebody's afraid gets pulled up, whatever it might be, we really teach them how to own their experiences, how to own their identities as an asset in all of it. Meanwhile, also giving them the nuts and bolts and whole suite of skills that they need. I mean, we have a, you know, a suite of programs that help support people who want to not only run for office, but manage campaigns, pursue appointments. We're really trying to encourage people to think about all the avenues to public service that exist. It's fascinating to see how our alums get engaged and why they get engaged. Some of our earliest alumni, for example, are from Arizona, and many of them were spurred into action by the introduction of Senate Bill 1070, which was the show me your papers law, essentially. And they've had enough and they wanted an opportunity to take things into their own hands. Those folks that we trained early on are now folks like Raquel Teran, who is now this Arizona state senator, but also the chair of the Arizona Democratic Party, for example. And then others who have decided to utilize those skill sets at more local government. We're seeing a lot of that changing over the last 12 years. And we've had a lot of firsts. But we're still seeing folks that are making history for the first time. Folks like Stephen Raga in New York, one of the newest assembly members. New York's a very diverse state and one of the most diverse places in the world. Yet Stephen is the first Filipino to ever serve in the elected state office, for example, or somewhere places as far as Alaska, someone like Genevieve Mina, who was just recently elected a state legislature. So we're, you know, seeing and watching people like Raquel and Steven and Genevieve, who I just talked about, run, win is significant for all of us. It changes the game. It changes the perspective of what's possible. I talked about not having those examples growing up, so I wasn't able to visualize that. And that's changing things for everyone else. On the other side of the organization, too, Zach, that is important to note the evolution of the organization. It was first, let's get people trained. Let's get them educated in what they can become, how they get there. And then we started seeing people get elected, right? And so we have this elected body now that needs support on how to govern, not just win, but how to actually govern. We developed over the years an elected officials network. And this is a cohort, essentially, 
a network that is supporting them with ongoing trainings, that is giving them policy uh, suggestions or ways to workshop struggles that they're facing and create networks and opportunities. It feels a little bit lonely to be a new American elected. If you talk to folks across the country uh, who don't come from major hubs, diverse hubs, they feel it in a lot of different ways. And so working with them to make sure that they have everything that they need to succeed. This year in particular, we have from now, between now and August, we have six different trainings to prepare people to run for office. They're going to be in places from Detroit to Arizona, to New York, to DC, to Colorado. So a lot of great things that are happening. We also have a lot of programming that's coming up to engage elected officials. And then last but not least, as the work evolved, the question became, well, we're running, but we're feeling like we're kind of, I talked a lot about these challenges that they face on the campaign front. They felt that they were not getting the support system by existing traditional institutions to actually win once they've declared. So we developed a C4 to support them, to help them win, to do endorsements of new Americans. That has been a fun journey to develop, but also a challenging one. It's very much a real pulse on American politics when we take a look at our action fund in particular. And you mentioned your group is nonpartisan, though also clearly has some pretty progressive fundamentals to it as well. Are there times you're approached by a Republican with an immigrant background? Yeah, that's definitely happened. And we've actually accepted people to join. You know, there's two things that we espouse. And those are one, a commitment to building a more inclusive democracy. So what that means is a greater access with transparency to our democracy for everyone. And then the other is a commitment to being more inclusive of immigrants and immigrant policies overall. So it's very feasible, very possible, and has existed for years that there might be a Republican who is very dedicated to our democracy and who are also pro-immigrant, feel that immigration pathways are critical to them. And so, of course, they're welcome to join. What is different a little bit about some of our training is that you don't just register for our training, you actually apply and you have to be selected for our trainings. And they're smaller cohorts, 25 to 35. And that's intentionally designed that way because we not only train the participants and all of the things that I've already mentioned, we provide coaching afterwards to help guide them in their individual plans to eventually run for office. Obviously, it's different when they're declared that stops, but it's thinking about what does base building for them look in this community? Who do you think I need to be reaching out to? What do I need to be doing to better strengthen myself? And often, actually, we point to appointments and say, have you considered why you you are preparing for a, a run in three years, four years? Have you considered an appointment in the meantime so that you're still feeling that you're having the impact and growing your networks, for example? Or have you considered working for an elected official so you understand what it takes to be an elected and to serve in government? Creating different pathways for folks, regardless of where they come from in terms of their political identity, as long as they're dedicated to access to democracy and to voting and also to uh, be inclusive of immigrants. You mentioned you have a C3, you have a C4, you have different arms that do different things. What is it like when you're deciding when the organization is going to endorse a candidate, spend real money on behalf of a candidate? Uh, How is that decision made? Yeah. So this was the C4, the New American Leaders Action Fund, was really important for us to set up, as I had mentioned, because we had folks who were alumni, were running and winning, sometimes struggling to feel seen on the campaign trail by some of the traditional institutions and endorsement organizations and such that exist. So that's how the really uh, New American Leaders Action Fund came to about. We wanted to make sure that we had a vision and to carry out this vision of uh, of engaging new voters, supporting rural Americans when they run for office, and really expanding 
new American civic engagement. Since 2018, when we started this, the C4, we've endorsed over 100 candidates, uh, new Americans in particular, often who are firsts uh, in their communities or of those groups to run for office. Of the 172 have gone to serve an elected office, which we're really proud of. And these are progressive champions that are shaking up politics as usual. They serve on the front lines of our communities. We're fighting back against some of the right wing white nationalist agenda that we've been seeing a lot of. And they're really bringing resources to underserved neighborhoods and calling out, calling out a lot of the systematic injustices that exist. We have some really great examples, even in places like New York City, where everybody's like, well, that's not an underrepresented. It actually was underrepresented when it came to new Americans. And you have folks like Shahana Hanif and Shikhar Krishnan, who are alum and endorsees of the organize, of both organizations. And they made history by becoming the first South Asians, for example, on that body. 20% of the New York City Council right now is actually our alum that we've trained or endorsees of our organization on the C4 side. You know, even places like Ohio, where it's really tough grounds. So we have folks like Munira Abdullahi and Nabila Sayed in Illinois, who are breaking barriers by becoming the first Muslims, right? So we're seeing a lot of that. In 2022 alone, we endorsed 60 people. It was the highest number of endorsees to date. We did that across 14 states, 46 won their primaries, 43 won their, their general election. So that's a remarkable win rate of 72%. It's very much proud of our group. But even leading to this election, Democrats were very nervous about the results. Nobody expected you know, the, the results that we saw. But I have to say, I was always very confident in our Darcy in, in Darcy's to win because I knew they were going to do the work. So it's, it's really they're changing policy conversations. They're engaging new people to vote and they're challenging these outdated of ideas of who is running and winning and leading in office. And so really, really proud of the work that we're seeing happen on the C4 side. And heading up this organization, and it's a pretty big organization, numerous employees, and you mentioned dozens or hundreds of candidates training per cycle, among many other things. Just in your own role as the CEO and president, is there an element, a component of the job that you find yourself spending more time on than you may would have anticipated when you took it or one that didn't come as natural, perhaps to you that you've had to work on a little bit more? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, one that I think I've spent more time on, uh, which I expected, but it, I probably wouldn't have been prepared for had I not previous roles that I'd been in. And that's on the, the fundraising side. Fundraising and development is a critical part of the organization's existence, obviously. We can't function without um, the resources that it needs to support uh, our organizations. We always look for as much as possible support in different avenues of the work. But that is an area that I uh, spent a lot of time doing. I'm actually very fortunate because of my political background that I'm very comfortable fundraising because of that, because I have you know done call time. It's because I've engaged with interest groups or whatever in my previous roles or uh, with different communities that I am very comfortable doing that. And I could see how that's something that might be a little bit more jarring for somebody else, for example. Pandemic is something that threw all of us off. You know, how do we continue this very critical work during a pandemic was a big question mark for everybody. You know, we transitioned our work from in-person to virtual. How do we still maintain meaningful training experiences for folks with real aspirations at a time when they can't knock doors? or they can't be in community, that was a big question. Because we rely so heavily on ground game and community engagement as new Americans to run for office became a major challenge. So thinking that through. And then there's a lot in this work, Zach, as you know, that we don't control <laughs> being in politics. You don't know what might happen, whether unfortunately it might be a tragedy or it might be a leader who comes in and 
changes what all of us think of as American politics, and we have to adjust to that. And state to state, that feels different. In places like Michigan, the leadership has changed drastically since this organization's founding. So how do we adjust to that? Or thinking about even places like Florida, where we've had alumni and we've trained folks, but you know, you have a leader, DeSantis, who is trying to wipe out a complete curriculum of African-American studies where folks don't feel seen because of what's reflected in schools, right? And so it's also fighting off ideologies that are deeply impacting our potential, our opportunities for real representation in our democracy. And if I piece it together right, and some of this is probably COVID-related, some of it's a reflection of just a big organization with a you know, national footprint, but you, you must have employees, co-workers in multiple places, New York, Washington, Detroit, I don't know, among others. What has been your experience? What have you figured out about running, managing an organization that is spread out and not all concentrated physically in an office where you can see and touch people every day like it might have been if you were in the same position a decade ago. What have you figured mm. out about that over the last couple of years? Yeah. So we do have staff a little bit all over the country. We have New York, New Jersey, and Michigan and DC, Arizona, Colorado, California. We, we have them in a lot of different places, and I'm sure I'm missing a bunch. But one of the things that the pandemic made clear is that not everyone has the access to the office space because we were traditionally headquartered in New York. So one of the decisions that I did make as an organizational leader is for us to go completely remote. And that was in hopes of creating more equity in terms of opportunity at the organization. And it was also in terms of access to resources for our staff, whether it's development or beyond, was something that was pretty important to me. And then also, as we are coming out of a pandemic, reinforce how critical it is to have people on the ground in those key areas and key states and, and regions that we are so heavily focused on. Nothing is a substitute. You know, we talk about this on the political front, right? It's, uh, you know, uh, doors and dollars, right? You can't substitute those for anything else. You know, on the nonprofit side, you can't substitute anything either for the resources that come in dollars and the doors as in the engagement of people on the ground and building real authentic relationships. One of the things that we pride ourselves on as an organization is that the leaders that come through our trainings are community-centered leaders. These are folks who don't usually have access to this kind of training or aren't usually invited or tapped on uh, to come into some of these trainings. So the community partnerships that we have on the ground are critical for our recruitment. It's critical for the trust that we have developed in those areas. And we are looking to expand that and to get into new places and new states and continue to build on that growth. Whether it's related to uh, new American leaders or just more broadly, what advice could you offer to someone early in their career, you know, maybe has a campaign or two under their belt, maybe has volunteered enough to know that it interests them, maybe still in school, but you know, are, are there things, practical things you think that person should be doing to prepare for a career in and around politics? Yeah. One of the first things I tell people is don't wait for someone to ask you to be involved. If you wait for someone to ask you, somebody to invite you into it, you might wait forever. That's the reality, unfortunately, of some of our politics, especially as a person of color, or especially as an immigrant. You might have to elbow a little bit, and that's okay. Elbow your way in and make sure that you are seen. Second is do it authentically in a way that feels real, that doesn't feel like you might have to whitewash yourself. Dilute who you are as a person in order to do that. I also highly encourage folks to intern to pursue some of these opportunities to see government in action. I think there is a little bit of 
people think that it's sexy to be an elected official and that there's a lot of glitz and glam around it, but it's hard work. It's very tough to be an elected and to serve in government. There's a lot of sacrifices. And I always encourage people to make sure that they are getting a real hand experience. That's one of the barriers too, is, you know, a lot of people would be interested, but a lot of internships don't actually pay. And when you come from an already economically disadvantaged background, it's hard to take on these opportunities. So it's been really encouraging to see a change in that front and opportunities being created for new Americans to step up. And I think the third one is you don't have to have it all figured out right now. You could try things. You could try multiple things and see what you like. But whatever it is that you decide to tackle, maybe abandon a little bit later on, but that's okay. But whatever you're going to take tackle in that moment, make sure it's something that's important to you and that you're passionate about. I think that's really important that you put heart in what you are doing. Couple that with smarts, of course. Try to find yourself some mentors or folks that you can learn from. And when pursuing opportunities, I often tell people, when you start something, think about what you want to walk away from as a skill set when you leave this job or this opportunity, because that allows you to be more intentional and proactive. Do you want to walk away and say, hey, I want to be a better fundraiser? Or do you want to walk away and say, I want to be a better management or manager of programs or manage people? Or I want to develop my writing skill, whatever it is, have some goals. But when you start a position of what you want to develop and walk away with. Well, let's end on a recommendation from you. What is something, a book, a TV show, a movie, a recipe, a product, something you've gotten into recently that you'd recommend people give a try? So, you know, Michigan winters are cold and I have uh, been avoiding going outside a lot these days. So I've actually been revisiting classic films, all-time favorites of folks, and I'm focusing on films that I've never gotten to watch before have fallen through the cracks. So I watched yesterday, for example, Goodwill Hunting for the first time, and I've sort of surveyed my friends and I've gotten all these recommendations. And I realized that even, you know, the days are long for us, obviously, all the things that all of us have to take on. But that's become my little time away, my break of turning off my laptop and just being able to get lost in something that has nothing to do with the realities of my everyday life. Film has been something that I've been spending a lot of time doing recently. I like it. Well, this has been a great political story, a great immigrant story, a great American story. Gita Dagger, thanks so much for your time today. Zach, thanks for chatting. It was so much fun. Thanks for listening to the Pro Politics Podcast. Please subscribe so you can access each episode first thing every Tuesday morning. And if you're so inclined, leave a rating and a short review on your podcast app to help more people find this podcast. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook for updates on upcoming guests. Thanks for listening.